Lovely to see you all. It's freezing cold, but beautiful in the November morning. Uh, today I have the job of leading us out of Hebrews. I believe the last sermon that you'll be hearing from our simplistic uh, series on the book of Hebrews. It will help you if you have Hebrews available in front of you. I don't have the words coming up behind me, I'm afraid, because I find that a big distraction. So it may help you to well, help you a lot if you want to follow along. Now, I'm jumping about quite a lot, so you have to be on your toes. And if you're not that quick on your toes, then Hebrews 9 is probably where the longest pattern is going to come from. So uh, just to give you some more now, that will be later on. So the title that I was given today is a mashup between Jesus is a better covenant and Jesus is the better sacrifice. And as I looked at those titles, I thought that means I need to say a couple of words about what the word better means and what the word covenant means. We live in an age of deep dissatisfaction, I think, with the present. Uh, some people have given this dissatisfaction a name and they call it the religion of wokeism. Some of you may have heard that. It's one of the uh, more recent words which has cropped up in our culture. Humanity's been asleep for, well, it's not clear how long we've been asleep for, but now it's time to wake up, at least here in the West, to see how bad things really are, both here and abroad. Things should be better. Things should be better. But it does rather beg the question, better than what? What are we comparing our present situation to? What are we trying to work our way towards? Are we trying to work our way towards the past? I think that's quite a popular destination for people to reflect back on. Rose-tinted glasses are quite a dangerous thing, I think, and our, our, our feelings of nostalgia can be very powerful. When exactly was it better? I have very fond memories of the 1990s. That was a very important decade for me. I was 12 when they started, and the decade started in 22 when it ended. It was a formative time for me. I look back at the 1990s as a very, very positive decade. But I have to remember, it wasn't all that positive for everybody. It was positive for me, but there were lots of other things going on as well, which were very negative. There was a very deep recession in 1991, which affected many people. The IRA were frequently bombing various places throughout the United Kingdom. There was the Stephen Lawrence murder and what that brought to the surface in our culture and society. And uh, we've been living with consequences of that since. There was war in the Balkans. There was war in the Middle East, which affected our country. Soldiers went and fought in those places. There were child sex abuse scandals that have since come to light, and so on. Sometimes people look back and they say that was a golden era, a golden age. And we have to be careful with that the conflict and the struggle and the strife that existed, what looks like a golden age from our perspective, but actually wasn't. So the children of Israel, the children of Israel under Moses, they leave slavery in Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, into the, into the wilderness, into the desert, and very quickly, what are they saying to Moses? They're saying, we wish we could go back. Let us go back. We want to go back to Egypt because they had cucumbers and they had men. It's very easy to look at the past like that. Well, I'm at the moment in uh, 2 Samuel, in my daily Bible readings, which I listen to, and I listen to the commentary. And it's easy to look at 2 Samuel. The kingship of David, the greatest of Israel's kings, a golden age in the life of Israel. You read 2 Samuel carefully, and you'll see actually his kingship was pretty disastrous. Personally, for his family, and with consequences which carried on for centuries in that nation. I'm not saying that things weren't better. But I'm saying you have to be very careful if you're going to make those comparisons. Comparing to the past is a risky business. Or are we comparing our present sometimes to a better place? 
Do we think other places have got it right? If only we were like them over there. The grass is greener over that particular fence. Or are we comparing it to some ideal utopia that has yet to be realised? If only we got our system and our politics and everything in order, we could reach heaven. And yet, that turns out to be rather a Tower of Babel, because you look through history and people's attempts at that end up more like hell than heaven. The drive for things to be better, it can crush as well. Have you heard that? It's always better. Even better if, I think, is a teaching phrase that sometimes my uh, wife or my children come out with. Even better if. It can always be better. You can always be better. And I understand the truth in that. But if things can always be better, then maybe it's never good enough. And if you're never good enough, how do you feel? Then if you can be better, can you be good enough? If your parents or if your children... Your church, your school, your workplace, or whatever can be better. Can they ever be good enough? Can contentment ever be found? Can rest ever be entered into? Because it could always be better. So better. I just want to put some warnings about the word better. Jesus is a better covenant. And covenant is another word I think we need to reflect on briefly because I don't think it's a word which has very much meaning in our current society. It's a difficult idea to understand, because we have almost no sense of it in daily life anymore. The idea that you would commit yourself to something, bind yourself to it by vow, by obligation, by duty, by love, is anathema in our present age, because we're taught again and again and again, the only thing ultimately that you really owe allegiance to is yourself. It's yourself, your true inner self, your better self, maybe your best self. Find your way to your best self. Marriage, I think, was the last bastion of covenant that we had experience of, but it doesn't really mean that much anymore because in our world, marriage is simply a provisional state of affairs until I owe it to myself to listen to my heart and go where the grass is allegedly greener. Covenant, though, runs through the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. It is front and centre of how we were designed to live. We were designed to live in a covenant. Not alone in idolatry to ourselves, but in covenant to a people and in covenant with our creator. In relationship with people to such a commitment that it can only be undone by death. That's why we say, until death do us part. I said it to my wife and she said it to me. Or until Jesus comes again. That's the other option as well. But our inability to grasp this level of commitment This makes us so weak, and it is demonstrated in our easy-come, easy-go approach to things, especially when things get difficult or we don't like them anymore. In August 2017, I preached a sermon from Matthew 24. This church, Jubilee, was on the cusp of great change at that time. Paul and Ruth had announced their intention to leave, and that was in motion or to move away. And I wanted to dissuade us of the idea that the future is always better, because it's not. Jesus, in Matthew 24, he paints this terrifying picture of the future of the church for the people who were listening to him then. Not for some distant future, he's saying, this will come to you. It was for them. And he didn't do it to terrify them, he did it to wake them up. Things do not always get better in a linear fashion. History is lumpy, things get better and things get worse. That's the reality in which we live. And so settle now in your heart with what you will do when the crisis comes. That's what Matthew 24 is about. This is coming. Prepare yourselves. Make your decisions now. And so I said this to the church. This is a quote from my notes. 
We are here for each other as the body of Jesus. Look around at each other. Think of the relationships you have in the church, because that is the church, not the structures and projects and things we do. It's a challenge for me, and it's a challenge for you to not give up. Whatever happens, don't give up. Resolve that now. Let's not give up on each other. Don't give up on this. Don't give up on Jesus, and he will not give up on us. And we're in a different place now. I think that message did fall on quite a few deaf ears. But that is the message of Hebrews. It's the message of this letter which we have been looking at. A message to a church of Christians under pressure, under pressure of persecution, under pressure of disillusionment, under pressure of change, under pressure of a corrupted gospel message, under pressure from the world. And it's a message which the writer is very uncompromising in delivering. He says to them at one point, you ought to be teachers by now, but you've regressed and you need to be spoken to as children. You're at risk of giving up meeting together. You're at risk of forgetting who Jesus is. There's this huge focus on who Jesus is. You're at risk of losing faith. You're at risk of going back to the old, obsolete ways. You're at risk of not receiving the discipline of God. And you're at risk of losing everything. Hebrews is an uncompromising letter. But, as it says, at least three times, the writer writes this, quoting a psalm. He says, today, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, then do not harden your heart. God speaks through this letter to wake us up so that we will endure and reach that better place which everyone is searching for but never finding. I'm sure you've realised Hebrews is 13 chapters. There's a lot of material to cover in that. It's a very dense book. It's a book, really, which is much more better suited to a small group Bible study going from beginning to end than a series of sermons on, on topics. There's so much in there. And so, as I was looking, I was thinking, well, I don't really know where to start. There's so much material. Jesus is a better covenant. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Where to start? Well, I'll just start with this. A better covenant. A better covenant means that there was previously a covenant which was not as good. The covenant between God and his people, Israel, inaugurated through Moses, delivered through angels at Mount Sinai, bound the people to God, and its blessings were dependent upon them keeping their side of that covenant. So there was this promise. The covenant promise was the promise of rest, the blessing of entering into rest, of getting into a land that's flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance, a land of peace where there's no war anymore. It's the promised land. That is the promise. But when they entered the promised land under Joshua, the people couldn't keep their side of the deal. They were an adulterous people. And they prostituted themselves with the gods of the other peoples of the land. And so they did not enter that blessing. And something I think we're going to start looking at next year. Is that right? From the book of Judges. That experience of entering into the promised land and it not being what they expected it to be. There was nothing wrong with the old covenant. Nothing wrong with it. The covenant itself was good. But it was powerless to overcome the root of the problem. The root of the problem is a heart rebellious towards God. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your heart. And so as the writer of Hebrews says to us in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, which I'll read, and he's quoting Psalm 95, the writer says, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, 
This is the quote from the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So he's saying the people of Israel watched God do incredible miracles for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this is God declaring that because of the disobedience of the people, because of a hard heart, they shall not enter his rest. And so in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, the writer will twice more warn this congregation, as I said, today if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Because as he will also say twice more, they shall not enter my rest. So what happened is that Israel did not enter into the promised rest, into that promised land, because they were disobedient and they, disobedient, and they hardened their hearts to God's voice calling them back. They entered into the land physically, but they experienced war and suffering, not blessing and rest. But hundreds of years later, this psalm, Psalm 95, was written, and Israel is exhorted to listen to God's voice today. This happened in the past, but listen today, which is why in Hebrews 4, verse 8, it's written, for if Joshua, when he took them into the promised land, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, which is called today. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his on the seventh day of creation. What he's saying is they entered into the promised land, and that wasn't the end, because there's still, God speaks of another day coming later on, called today. Today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts, because something better is coming. I'm trying to summarise a lot of verses here. But what I'm basically saying is that in, under the old covenant, which promised rest, it couldn't be entered into because of a rebellious human heart. But a new day is here today, when you can enter that rest and hear God's voice and enter into the promised rest. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as those led by Moses and Joshua. That's rest. Rest is promised and rest can be entered into. The second feature is the promise of a new priest, which is what the next few chapters of the letter focus on. The old covenant was mediated by priests who stood between God and the people. And they themselves, Hebrews says, were sinful human beings just like us who offered sacrifices daily as a reminder that they needed forgiveness themselves. The priests were not perfect. They were human flesh just like us. And they had to offer forgiveness for the people. The fact that the sacrifices were made repeatedly, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, reminded them that under the old covenant, the root cause of all of this trouble could never really be dealt with because the blood of animals cannot change the human heart. And so Hebrews goes at great lengths to talk about this person called Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who was a priest right back at the beginning when Abraham was around. Before there was a priesthood under Moses and the old covenant, there was this very mysterious person, Melchizedek, who blessed Abraham and who Abraham paid tithes to and we're not going to get into all of that but that's a big feature of the letter of Hebrews but he was completely outside this Melchizedek completely outside of the old covenant and Hebrews is saying we need a new priest who is also outside of the old covenant who is not weak like we are who is not beset with sin like we are 
but comes from a different place, comes from a divine place, comes from heaven itself. Since the old covenant priests cannot bring us directly into the presence of God, a new priest is required, a son who has been made perfect forever. That's all in chapter 7. We're not going to read that. But the effect is illustrated in chapter 9, which I did ask you to get ready earlier if you want to read along from verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV, so it may be slightly different to what you've got in front of you. Now, even the first, that is the old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, a tabernacle for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And then it goes on to describe the most holy place. Verse 6. These preparations, having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, cannot deal with a hard heart, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So under the Old Testament, we haven't finished in chapter 9, by the way. So under the Old Covenant, it was come to God, but only come so far. Ordinary people couldn't enter the holy place of the temple. And it was only the high priest who could enter the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. And even then, only once a year, and even then he had to take a sacrifice. God and humanity were separated by this fragile conduit between them via the holy place and the most holy place. That was all that existed. Lest God, who is later described in chapter 12 as a consuming fire, consume the worshipper, because the worshipper's consciences could not be perfected. God is holy. The unholy comes into his presence and is consumed. Chapter 12, verse 21. It says this, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That was the old covenant. That when you come to God, you tremble with fear. It was terrifying. That was where the old covenant brought you. Verse 11, chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is him, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, but of a divine heavenly origin, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new priest, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, the rest which we have been promised, since a death has occurred. Jesus' death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Under the old covenant, the priests could only take the people so far towards God. But Jesus enters God's presence himself and offers himself as a sacrifice. And because he is perfect, his sacrifice, unlike that of the animals, actually does something. It's offered on behalf of the people. 
to cleanse our consciences, to deal with a rebellious heart. So because his sacrifice is good enough, it doesn't need to be repeated. It's once and for all, there are no more sacrifices of blood. And we follow him into the very presence of God. We are no longer held at arm's length, but drawn near. Chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what we come near to. Rest and a clean conscience that allows you to enter into the very presence of God and live. And this was all predicted in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews quotes at length from the prophet Jeremiah, which we'll read in a minute. Jeremiah writing 700 years previously. Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What he's saying is, if the old covenant was perfect, the Old Testament wouldn't itself say, a better covenant is coming. It looks forward to a new one. And he proves that then by quoting from Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31. For he finds fault with them when he says, This is Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant because of their hard hearts. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbour and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. End of quote from Jeremiah. That's what we have entered into. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, is what the writer to Hebrews says. The old covenant was limited and ineffective because human hearts were hard and rebellious. We did not listen to God, and so we did not know God. And so a new covenant was required, one which was pointed to by the old. And so Jesus, through whom God created the world, Hebrews 1 verse 2, came to earth and God spoke through him. The appointed son to inaugurate this new covenant, he entered the most holy place on our behalf, where we could not go because of our imperfection, and offered himself once and for all for our sins, to cleanse us from our rebellion. And in doing so, he has opened up a new way for us to draw near to God, from whom we have been estranged. And in doing this, our consciences are cleansed and God's law is written on our heart and in our mind. Our heart is changed for we can all know God. And in entering the most holy place, mediated by Christ our high priest, we find rest. If you believe 
that by the world's standards, your life in this world ought to get better, easier, richer, healthier. You are believing a lie. There is no reason to believe that. It may get better, but it may not. Physical suffering, decay, and death are what comes to us all in the end. But if today you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts, then we can say, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, that our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we end with where Angus started. We didn't know that. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is drawing near. The day of rest, peace, and seeing God face to face. So have joy in your hearts. We see it as in a mirror now. Not a modern mirror, a mirror from 2,000 years ago, a very distorted mirror. But one day we shall see it face to face. Have joy in your hearts, put a spring in your step and love freely. For we live under a new covenant with Christ as its guarantor, free from guilt, free from shame and with all our hope in a very bright future. I'm going to pray and then it would be great if we could sing. Father, we thank you that you have made a new and better covenant with us, one that does not depend upon our performance, one that does not depend upon our dead works, one that does not depend on us having to overcome a hard and rebellious heart ourselves. But we live under a new and better second covenant where Jesus has come and through grace has opened up the way for us to follow that we may know you from the least to the greatest and that our hearts may be changed and that today we may hear your voice and by your spirit it may, our spirits may be brought to life to listen and to hear you, to have our lives brought back into alignment with the way that they were designed to be. Father, as we have heard your voice today, I pray that you would awaken us, that we would have soft hearts towards you towards one another and towards this creation which you have made and that we would follow in the way of Jesus into the very presence of God with him as our example and as our friend, as an ever-present presence by the Spirit and who is interceding at the right hand of the Father for us. We want to follow with him. Lead us into the joy that that brings, we pray, and may our Eyes be set upon that horizon where this age will end, the new will finally be ushered in. We shall see you face to face. And that dream, that rest, that promised land, which we are all 
hungry for, will be entered into in all of its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.